I had a tough year in fifth grade. Some of you would say, let it go. <laughs> I had a tough year in fifth grade because I was shorter than everyone else. I wasn't athletic. I could not throw a ball, kick a ball, or catch a ball. By the way, I still can't throw a ball, catch a ball, kick a ball. That's why they always put me in the outfield in, in the softball team. I was getting D's in two of my subjects. That's D as in David, D's. And they had to have a parent-teacher conference where they do the whole, Mrs. Vanderpool, we're concerned about your son. Is everything okay at home? You know, that kind of conversation. Uh, I didn't have any friends, and I wasn't even a Christian yet. It was a hard year. It was a hard time. And in junior high school, I developed uh, what I like to call a disarming sense of humor. I still have it today. And I also developed the capacity to get all A's. And I discovered that with a little bit of humor and a lot of razzle and dazzle, people will pat you on the back. They will tell you, good job. They'll tell you that you're somebody if you're getting a 4.0 GPA or if you're getting 99s on tests. And so all throughout high school and college and whatnot, I had the professors and the teachers, woo, you go, Vanderpool, the way to knock it out of the park. I even won a national competition in, in history writing and beat out guys from Yale and Harvard. But you know what I discovered? It wasn't enough. Like it just wasn't enough. Like it, did, it didn't do what I thought it would do for me. So I would hear and even tell people, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, Rita, God loves you, Carol, God loves you, David. And, then, and if it was you, I would totally believe that whole lock, stock, and barrel. Of course God loves them. They're, why wouldn't God love them? And God is for them and God is with them. But when it came to me, I always thought, mm, God doesn't love me near as much. And you know what I've discovered? There are a lot of people out there who think the same thing. They think that God actually loves everybody else just a little bit more, just a smidge more than God loves them. And it's the weirdest thing in the world. And so what, the way it's supposed to work when you're a kid, by the way, if you don't know this, if you're a teenager, I'm going to explain you how families are supposed to work and you'll laugh. <laughs> So the way it's supposed to work if you're a kid is you're supposed to grow up in a home with a mom and a dad who love you unconditionally, no matter what. So that by the time you're an adult and you hear about the fact that there's this God who made everything and God loves you no matter what and loves you unconditionally, you're like, ding, I know what that is because I had that at home. The problem is rare is the home where that is lived out. Rare is the home. And so in this room, in this city, in this country, all over the world are people who are weary and heavy laden because they've believed the voices in their head that tell them all the time that they're worthless and that they're unlovable. And these voices are telling them who they are. And so they turn to things. If I could just get enough success, if I could just get that next promotion, if I could just have that title, if I could just finish that degree, then I would be somebody. If I could just have enough people like me and support me. You know, when I post something on social media, it's only got like 30 things. And my sister, it's always like 500. Like if I could just have a smidge more, I would be somebody. Or, and then the weird thing, I know people my age that are like, they get the sports car and they're having the midlife crisis and it's like, well, if I just had the right toy or the right experience, it would be, I would be somebody. 
Henry Nouwen, who was a, in my opinion, brilliant theologian, wrote about this in his book, In the Name of Jesus. This book is so important that when I teach the introductory class on leadership in, at Asbury University, this is a required text, and I actually take time out of the class and make them read it in class because I don't want any of them to get out of the class having just faked it and not really read it. It's that important, right? In the name of Jesus. Now, Henry Nouwen tackles this issue that I'm talking about head on in this book. And he says, all of us have a line. We have this line, we're born and we die. And all along this line, we're trying to figure out, who am I? Who am I? And he says, typically in America and in Western culture, we tend to root our identity and answer that question in one of three ways. The first way that we answer it is in terms of what I do. Very first question, if you're a man and you go to the chamber event, hi, typically, what do you do? Very first question that you're asked. Uh, and so, well, I'm the director. Uh, I'm the regional rep. When, when we started Generations, I could call myself the lead pastor. Never mind that at the time I was the only pastor, but <laughs> I'm the lead pastor. Um, and so I'm on the starting lineup of the varsity team. Uh, I'm a basketball uh, starter. I'm a goalie. I'm a musician. I am what I do. And then there's the other way that we tend to root our identity now and says, what others say of me. You are so beautiful. Or you are such an idiot. You really are a blessing. Or I can't believe you. You are such a drain. And so when the things that are said of us are positive, whoop, whoop, whoop. We just walk a little taller and we're a little prouder and we're a little happier. And when the things are negative, we're kind of hunched over. It's like we're carrying the weight of the world and it's hard, it's rough. It's why, by the way, in employment situations that the ratio of positive negative has to be six to one. And in healthy families, the ratio of positive to negative is 10 to one. Some of you are like, uh, I think I need to revisit my childhood. <laughs> Okay, and then the last one, we tend to root our identity in what we have, in what we have. And so it's gotta be the right kind of house or job or, or whatever it is. And if I lose some of those things, I'm just depressed. I'm depressed. And so much energy and effort goes into these three areas. And so much of our lives are spent trying to root our identity in them. Which means that life is this series of ups and downs and ups and downs. And so things are going really well and I completed my degree and I've got the right kind of internship lined up and woohoo! And then the job that I interviewed for, they said no. And the other job that I interviewed for, they said no. And all my friends have jobs and I've got squat. And then I'm below the line. And so we spend the whole line, just trying the whole length of that line, just trying to stay above average. And it's a lot of energy and effort that goes into that. And I want to say to you, it is a complete waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. Jesus was born to an unknown family. He was the son of a common carpenter. He spent his childhood in Nazareth, a small backwater town of no significance, and he received no formal education that we know of. There was absolutely nothing in Jesus' upbringing that would have caused people to say 
this boy's got potential. Everybody stand back, watch out. This Jesus, this Jesus is going to make a dent in this old world. You just wait and see. Nobody said that. You know how I know that? Because every time he went back to his hometown, their response to him was the same. Who do you think you are? Like, we know you. We know your upbringing. We know your parents. Like, there was nothing special about you. And now you think you're all this? And Jesus could perform no miracles there, right? We're told in the Gospels, right? Or few miracles, right? So, so we know that there was nothing significant about it. Well, when the time came for Jesus to begin his public ministry, he went to the River Jordan to be baptized by his cousin, John. And it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And we're going to read this. After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water, and the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Jesus, this is who you are. This identity rooted in God is going to allow you to live a life where people will praise you and reject you, where people will follow you and spit on you. You are loved, not because of what you've done, not because of what other people are saying of you, because nobody's saying anything at the moment about you, and certainly not because of anything you have, you're loved. And look at what happens next. He's driven into the desert, and that's Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus turned this stone into bread. Do something. Use your power for your benefit. You're hungry, aren't you? Look at what you can do. No. Matthew 4, verses 5 and following. Um, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say he'll order his angels to protect you and they'll hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Jump off. Everyone will see it and be amazed. People will talk and think of the buzz that it will create. You won't need a Facebook social media campaign like that will go viral, Jesus. Don't you want to be loved and admired by the masses? And then verse 8 and following. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you'll just kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil went away, and angels care came and took care of Jesus. Bow before me, the devil is saying, and you can get it all now without the cross. You can get all the glory, you can get it all without the sacrifice, without the suffering. And the accuser 
went away because Jesus knew who he was. I am God's beloved. I am God's beloved. That This sense of belovedness, by the way, sends Jesus out, and it will always do that. So if you know of believers of Christians that are like, I'm just love to God, and all they do is sit around and hold hands with people, and we just, we're just so loved, we're just so loved, and that's all they do is sit around and hold hands, and they don't go out. That's not belovedness, that's something else. Because the very next thing that happens with Jesus is that he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to his hometown, and this is what Luke tells us. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That sense of belovedness drove Jesus to his hometown where he announces what? It's gonna be good news to the poor. Captives are gonna be freed and the blind will see. It doesn't just stay with him. It's why Jesus was able to do the unthinkable, by the way, in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, it's at the end of Jesus' public ministry and he's sharing a meal with his friends and they've all come in through uh, the door and there's a towel and basin and somebody should be washing feet and one by one they all pass by it because not me, that's so beneath me because these same men had been having arguments. We know just right before, who's the, who, what's the pecking order of the 12? We know Peter, James, and John are in the top tier, but I want to at least be four. Right? I don't want to be five or seven or ten. I want to at least be four. And so they're having this pecking session. Who's in, in the order? And, and not a single one of them has the identity security to pick up that towel and basin because they don't want to be marked as being at the bottom of the totem pole. But Jesus, what does John tell us about Jesus? Before Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So... He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew that he was God's beloved. John tells us he knew the Father had given him authority over what? Everything. And that he had come from who? God. Where was he going? God. He was 100% secure in who he was. He didn't need the miracles and the kapow and all the things that were marked by his ministry to tell him who he was. He didn't need the praise of people. By the way, next year's an election year, and I just want to remind you, the only time Jesus was on the ballot, Barabbas won. The only time Jesus was on the ballot, the opponent won, okay? And so Jesus was able to do these things because he knew I am God's beloved. 
And that security and that knowledge enabled him to take up a towel and basin, something none of his friends were secure enough to do, and wash the feet of everyone. And then he says, go and do likewise, right? Go and do what I've done to you. The brilliance, I think, of Henry Nouwen's teaching on this subject is his assertion that what is said of Jesus is said of you and me. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Psalm 139, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. So let me ask a question or two in light of this passage. Who am I? Have you spent the better part of 2019 trying to answer this question by things that you're knocking out and accomplishing, by what other people are saying of you, either behind your back or on social media, or by what you have or don't have? Hasn't it been wearisome to do that? Has it really given you everything that you thought it would give you? Who am I? And then, do I want to spend the rest of my life chasing meaning from what I do, from what others say of me, and from what I have? Do I really want to spend my life doing that? What if to be truly human is to live knowing that I'm loved by the one who made me? What if fundamental to really being human is knowing that we're loved so that we can love others? What if that's one of the keys to being human? You know, Paul says that Jesus is the new humanity, the new Adam, the way humanity is supposed to be, he says in his letters. So how do we take this home? Well, I have some, I have some suggestions. And the first one is one you might expect, scripture intake. How does Jesus debate and, and, and thwart off his accuser in the desert? With scripture, with scripture. The wrong approach to scripture intake is asking, Pastor Max, what's the bare minimum I need to read? What's the bare minimum of scripture I need to do so that I'm on the Jesus train? What's the bare minimum? The right approach is, what can I feed my mind so that I can really live? I believe Jesus was the freest man who ever lived. And part of it's memorizing key passages. Uh, I've got a book that, that's 100 verses every Christian should have tucked away in their heart for moments when you're gonna get accused. And trust me, it's gonna happen. Those accusing voices are gonna rattle around in your head. You're nobody, you're worthless, you're not loved. Like those voices are gonna come up. And the second thing is stop, cease, take a real Sabbath. You cannot hear God's voice in the middle of the whirlwind. I've not taken a day off in the last 120 days that we've been spent moving into this place because every time there's been work, I've showed up because I didn't want there to be a time when people were showing up and the pastor wasn't there to work. And can I just tell you that Max Vanderpool is not Max Vanderpool 7.0. When there's no Sabbath, I'm Max Vanderpool 2.5. It's a lower quality, lower version of myself. I am less human when I simply go, go, go. And you know what? You are too. You're less human to the people around you that love you, that are counting on you and that depend on you when it's just whirlwind, whirlwind, go, go, go. So stop, cease, take a Sabbath. Where did Elijah hear God's voice? Was it in the thunder, in the earthquake, in the rain? No. It's still small whisper and then lastly for some of you it might boil down to decide to follow jesus the gospels and the the apostle paul talk about it as this repent and believe 
repent, which means to turn, and believe, which means that you've got confidence that what God has done through Jesus Christ is enough. By the way, the prodigal son knew that he wasn't good enough. He does this speech, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Can I come back as a hired hand? Like he's got the speech, right? And he goes back. And what does the father say? Does the father say, <laughs> well, at least the idiot son of mine had the horse sense to come back home. <laughs> Is that what the father does? No. The son's given a ring, a robe, and a party. It's as though he had never wandered off. Never wandered off. Okay? So, so this, um, I want to make a connection for you that you may not have made before. It's in Romans chapter 6. Uh, Andrew Murray and many of the writers in the late 1800s, early 1900s talked about this all the time, but we don't tend to talk about it anymore uh, in 2019. Paul says this, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And since we've been united with him in his death, we'll be raised to life as he was. What Paul is saying is, when you repent and believe at this point of baptism, you're united with Jesus Christ. You're united with Jesus Christ in a way that how God sees you and what God says of you is how God sees Jesus and what God says of Jesus in Matthew 3, 17. This is my son, my daughter, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Um, and so this is critically important. It's why the earliest Christians called this whole thing, by the way, the good news, and while the angels proclaimed to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem that they had good news that would bring great joy to all people. Are you kind of sensing why this is such the big deal that it is? Limited, Jesus was limited the way you and I are. Dependent, but Jesus was loved. He knew that he was loved. And that framed his identity. This is what it means to be human, gang. Okay? I've told this story before, and um, I want to tell it again. Some of you, now that I've got an office that's in the building where we meet, you've noticed that I've got people hanging on my wall. Not people, but pictures of them. You get it. That'd be rough, wouldn't it? Ah, the pastor's got people hanging in there. Um, so I've got Fred Rogers and George C. Marshall and all these people uh, whose portraits hang there. And many people see the picture of Dr. King and they think, oh, you've got that because of the civil rights thing. And no, actually, that's not why he hangs on my wall. Um, Martin Luther King, on the night of January 27th, 1956, that was a turning point for him. Um, Dr. King did not really want to be involved in the civil rights movement. I don't know if you know this, but he, he, he was kind of drug into it. He didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't his fight, so to speak. And he kept getting pressured and asked and asked to speak at things. And he knew people were getting beaten. People were getting lynched. There was a cost to this, and he wasn't real keen on the cost part of it. And so on the night of January 27th, someone that had to have been from the KKK phoned his home. And this is before caller ID and any of that stuff. So in complete anonymity, the guy says this, and this is what Dr. King writes. Listen, nigger, 
We're tired of you. If you ain't, a town, ain't out of town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And Martin Luther King says when he hung up the phone, his hand was shaking, and he was just, he was just ridden by fear. Like, he was just afraid. And he couldn't help being afraid. And he said he didn't know what to do. And so at the kitchen table with his wife and kids asleep, he said he just prayed. And he just started praying. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And then he said he heard a second voice. And this voice said, Martin, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. I will be with you. I will never leave you. Never. I am with you, Martin. And he said that voice that he heard in the kitchen, the second one, he said he was convinced that was the voice of Jesus. I'm telling you, you need to let God tell you who you are. It's so critically important. And I really am convinced that most people, they believe in their head, God loves everybody, but if you put a gun to their head, they would have to acknowledge that God loves everybody else just a little bit more and that just ain't so.